Hello, this is James Renner telling you to subscribe to Buddy Candela or else. How's it going, everyone? And welcome to the first episode of my new podcast for the Halloween season, The Buddy's House of Horror Podcast. Now, if you've been following my channel for a long time, you know that Halloween time is my favorite time of year. And I want to do something special this year in addition to the regular shows that I do every October. Every Saturday, you're still going to be getting a new episode of Two Nerds a Podcast and a new episode of Lost on VHS during the week. But on top of that, you're going to be getting a House of Horrors podcast and most likely another special video every single week in October. So that's two podcasts a week, a new episode of Lost on VHS, and probably something else Halloween-related for this entire month. So needless to say, I'm keeping myself pretty busy, so if episodes end up coming out a little later than expected, I do apologize for that. So for this podcast, I wanted to set up interviews with some very interesting people and people that I've been wanting to talk to for a long time. I'm really looking forward to sharing all these incredible interviews with you over the next month with experts from the horror field, filmmakers, actors, authors, and even the former high school friend of one of our country's most disturbing serial killers, Jeffrey Dahmer. Because for me, Halloween doesn't necessarily always have to be about ghosts and goblins, but it can also focus on the sort of horrors of real life. And that's what you're going to get today with my conversation with James Renner. James is not only an accomplished author in the fiction world, but he is also a true crime expert and one of the key components in the research and investigations of such cases as the disappearance of Maura Murray and the Amy Mahalovic case. As I mentioned before, James is also an accomplished novelist with his book, The Man from Primrose Lane, currently being adapted into a series by some major players out in Hollywood. Not only are we going to be talking about his novels and his true crime books, but we're also going to be touching on his childhood, how he became interested in being a true crime investigator, as well as his time at my alma mater, Kent State. We're also going to be talking about his time investigating and researching supernatural creatures for his book, It Came From Ohio, which focuses on the Mothman, Bigfoot, the Loveland Frog, among many others. Originally, we were going to do this podcast on Skype for you guys so you could see full video of our conversation, but of course, with my luck, my Skype recorder randomly decided to stop working as soon as I got James on the line. So unfortunately, we had to go with talking over the phone as a backup, so I do apologize for the lack of video and the audio quality not being as good as usual doing to have to hold the phone up to a microphone, but hey, you gotta do what you gotta do. Before we get started with the interview, if you're interested in purchasing any of James's books, such as True Crime Addict or The Man from Primrose Lane, you can find links to his online store as well as all of his social media at jamesrenner.com. And as always, if you're not subscribed to this channel, make sure you hit that red subscribe button, smash that like button and share this video with a friend. Without further ado, enjoy the very first episode of the House of Horrors podcast with James Renner. So I've been seeing a lot on your social media, this Virtually a Detective, your new series that's coming out. What can you, um, what's all about that? I love the title, by the way, um, Virtually a Detective. <laughs> it's a good play on words there. So what, what's that show all about? Thanks. Um, yeah, so it's an idea I've had for a while. And, uh, you know, this, uh, the equipment and technology to do uh, virtual reality filming and 360-degree uh, video um, became uh, manageable. Um, you know, it became cheap enough to, uh, um, to pick up from, uh, you know, online. And uh, I got this attachment for my iPhone that allows you to capture 360-degree video, and it even has halfway decent sound, although I also re um, recorded the sound on uh, another separate device. And, um, yeah, so uh, um, I was looking for 
something to showcase using this new technology. And I was at CrimeCon this year, which is uh, the annual convention for true crime that's uh, put on partly by the Oxygen Network and um, various organizations. And um, it was the second year that, uh, that this CrimeCon has gone on, and it was in Nashville. Anyway, I went down there. I sold uh, a lot of books and met a lot of people. And one day I was sitting at my little table, and this young woman comes up and starts talking to me about writing, and she's interested in writing a book herself. And, um, you know, she looked young enough, like, what are you going to write about? What do you want to write about? You know, have you experienced enough to write about anything? Um she told me that her sister had been murdered a year before. And I realized that I was talking to Kelsey German, who is the sister of Libby German. Libby German and Abby Williams were um, murdered in Delphi, Indiana, in February of 2017. Uh, and it's a really sad case, uh, but very solvable. Um, the circumstances of the crime were that it was a day off of school, and Kelsey and Abby were driven to this um, nearby park that had this walking trail. And the girls walked down the trail and came to this old abandoned bridge that is like 60 feet high. And it's something that the neighborhood kids kind of dare each other to cross. And so that's what they did. They crossed this bridge that day, and they got to the other side. And on the other side is kind of nothing. It's private property, and there's really nobody else over there except for the people that uh, that have houses further back that way. Um, so it's kind of a desolate, empty area that nobody goes to. So they had crossed the bridge, and they looked over, and they saw a man crossing the bridge towards them. And Libby um, was smart enough to capture this man's picture on her iPhone and then she set her Snapchat on and so we also have his voice uh, saying down the hill as he directed them down the hill from where, where they were. Apparently the girls realized something was was not quite right as he was crossing the bridge. So anyways um, we don't know the details of what happened in the next hour or so but both girls were murdered and, and attacked. So uh, it, this crime is unsolved to this day, even though we have this guy's picture, even though we have his voice. So Kelsey asked uh, if there's anything I could do to help. You know, it's, a, it's a better know. So I looked at it, and I thought it was a perfect case for this virtual reality uh, camera because people are interested in the Delphi case from all over the world and, and UK, and there's a lot of people that can't ever drive out there to see what it's like. And Hearing about these cases is one thing, but if you're able to step into those locations, uh, you you see a lot more, you learn a lot more, and that's what this is about. So it's an immersive true crime uh, web series. So you can watch it on your VR headset and look around as if you're actually there, following next to me as I interview these people and go out to the bridge and uh, show you around Delphi. You can watch it on YouTube, too, and just use your cursor to, to scroll around to look at what you want, kind of like Google Maps. So it's, it's really interesting. It's a, it's a new, new, uh, new way to look at true crime. 
Cool. Okay, just uh, one second. So I guess while we're on the subject of YouTube and all that, um, and before we dive too deep into conversation here, where can people um, follow you on social media? What's your YouTube? Um, where can people buy your stuff? And just anything you want to plug, just throw it out right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so if anybody's interested in, in my books or, or YouTube or, or the series for anything, you know, the best place to go is jamesrenner.com. You'll find links there to do whatever you want, whatever your advice is. Cool. Um, for those of you who don't know James Renner, you're going to get to know him pretty well today, I hope. Um, he is not only an author, as he said, he has written many books. He's also a producer, director. Um, he is a serial killer hunter, and he's been a key factor in many true crime cases that have been going on, specifically... Um, the Amy Mihalovic case, the Moore Murray case, um, and he was even involved with the Cleveland abduction case, um, which everyone knows about. Um, but before any of that, let's um, basically go back to how you got interested in true crime to begin with. And if you've listened to James's podcast, The Philosophy of Crime, you already know the answer to this. I mean, if you haven't, definitely go check that out. Um, but tell us about how you got interested in true crime and um, how you started with the Amy Mihalovic case. Yeah, so everything goes back to the Amy Mihalovic case. Uh, this was a, a young girl who um, we were... I should start by saying that both Amy and I were born in 1978. And in 1989, she was about to turn 11, and this was in October, October 27, 1989. And uh, young Amy was abducted from uh, Bay Village, Ohio, just on the west side. It's kind of an affluent suburb. And her kidnapper had planned this meeting with her um, under the guise that he convinced her that he had worked with her mother and her mother had gotten a promotion at work and he was going to take her to get a present to surprise her. Now that was all an elaborate hoax, but it worked. Uh, she agreed to meet with him and so it wasn't like he snatched this kid and, uh, you know, she, she um, screamed and all that. She went willingly with her abductor because she trusted him. And he arranged this pickup after school on a Friday afternoon. Um, it was a, a warm autumn day uh, in Bay Village. And he took her from this plaza, which is right across the street from the police station. And she disappeared. And it was big news. And at the time, my mother lived in Rocky River. And I'd go up there on the weekends and spend time with her. And I'd see Amy's poster on telephone poles all over the place and, you know, in stores. And everybody was looking for her. And, um, you know, being the same age, uh, I, I had turned 11 earlier that year. Um, I, uh, for whatever reason, took it upon myself to try to figure out what happened to her, even at at age 11, I used to get on my Huffy bike and, and I'd ride it up to Westgate Mall and I'd look for Amy in the crowds, thinking that the mall was where the most people were at any given time. And uh, if she got, um, you know, separated or, or um, you know, maybe she would be taken there or maybe that's where she'd end up. And unfortunately, they found her body on County Road 1181 in Ashland County just a couple months later in the beginning of 1990. 
Um, and so I kept going back to that mall at that point looking for her killer based on the composite sketch that was provided by a couple uh, classmates of hers that saw her walk away with this man. So, um, you know, at a very early age, I became interested in, in true crime and thinking that I could I could uh, investigate on my own and, and help help these cases. And so Amy's case never really went away. I always kind of thought about it. I went to Kent State, I worked for the student newspaper, and after graduating, I eventually ended up getting a job with Cleveland Scene, which was, um, you know, that, that free newspaper that you can pick up in record stores and bars and other seedy places, and um, it was a blast to work there for, to go work there for seven or eight years. And, um, Amy's story was the first story I pitched, and by that time, 16 years had passed. And I figured, you know, by then, the police must have known who did it. They just didn't have enough evidence to, to convict. And, um, you know, that was a very naive reporter thing to think because what I quickly figured out was the reason why they've never been able to solve this case is there are too many men with the means, motive, and opportunity to commit the crime. Uh, the best the FBI has ever been able to do is narrow that down to a top 25 list. And so it was much too big for an article, even though I, it, it did become one of my first articles. So I kept researching it, and that uh, article became uh, my first book. And uh, my book on the Amy Mihalovic case came out in 2006. And then everything kind of came out of that. I used to go to library talks and talk about Amy's disappearance, and people would come up to me afterwards and say, hey, have you ever looked into the case of Beverly Jaros or Beverly Potts or, you know, Amanda Berry and Gina DeJesus? So I started becoming uh, quickly known as the, the true crime guy in, in Cleveland. And I started collecting these stories, and that led to several more true crime books. And then um, I became a little tired of delving into real-life murders and victims and things like that, so I switched over to fiction. And my first novel came out in 2012 called Man from Primrose Lane. And since then, I've, I've mostly written fiction, except for my last book, which was called True Crime Addict, which was about the disappearance of Maura Murray. But, um, you know, every I can trace my career and everything that I'm doing now to that obsession with trying to find Amy's killer when I was 11 years old. Cool. So what kind of was it like as a kid who's interested in true crime and all that like there was i mean the inter the internet was in its infant stages um back then when a lot of this stuff was kind of going on and like what do, what do kids in school think when you say hey i'm into serial killers and true crime like what what was what was high school and all that like for you <laughs> uh you know i i think you know i got one of those um you know, uh, most creative or something that the senior ex expletives or, you know, uh, whatever they call them. Um, but senior superlatives. Yeah, superlatives, that's right. Um, I was always doing something a little bit different, a little bit creative. I, um, did, I used to, in high school, I would film these little movies that were about 45 minutes long to an hour with my friends using VHS camcorders, and I used to edit them with two or three VCRs uh, all linked together, and I had to edit linearly, and 
it was uh, it was quite a project. And it's but, called the uh, Cinemassacre technique because it's a massacre <laughs> of cinema. Sure, um, but you know, so I had a lot of fun with that. I, I put these movies together, and then I'd run out the town hall, and I'd make popcorn, and and we'd all. Uh, and I'd charge admission like five bucks to come in and see the movie. And um, so that's what I was doing in high school. And uh, so I've, I've always kind of gone back and forth between true crime and um, entertainment and, and novels. Um, currently, what's what's paying the bills is I'm adapting The Man from Primrose Lane into a TV series. So um, I should have some more news on that in uh, uh, December, I think. Cool. Um, yeah, I was going to ask you about that later on, um, but before, because I have, uh, before we get to your other books and stuff, um, you mentioned you went to Kent State. I also went to Kent State. Um, yeah, what? Golden flashes. Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> so um, I'm assuming you went for journalism. Is that a I fair? Did not. I I, uh, I have an English degree from uh, Kent State with a minor in writing, so I spent a lot of time at Satterfield Hall. And, uh, but I would also write opinion pieces, uh, and, um, yeah, opinion pieces, editorials for the newspaper. So I, and then I, I really, you know, over time, I really started to enjoy that, um, working for the newspaper and also the television production, uh, house, the TV2, they called it at, at Kent State. Oh, it's so. still called that. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and, you know, when, when I was doing it, they, they, when I started there, they, they were just doing news um, because uh, they, the channel would go out to that local, the local communities of Ravenna and Kent there, and um, I showed them a way that they could do un, uh, a new way of doing underwriting, um, and it allowed them to pay for other productions, and so they let me have my own late-night TV talk show. Last uh, call. With, yeah, last call with, with Mike Polk and Chad Zumach uh, and Aaron McBride and Jeff Edders. And, yeah, they all went on to do um, really cool things. Chad's a stand-up comic now, and Mike Polk is too, but he's also doing plays, and he's got his own uh, show on uh, Fox 8 on Sundays, I believe. Cool. So why Kent State? I think... Um, reasons. I, I thought that maybe I'd go to college and become an FBI agent. You know, I had that interest in investigation, but uh, then I met my wife, and uh, uh, that kind of changed my, my path, and I thought, hey, I'll, I'll, I'll go to school and, um, and become an English teacher. So Kent State was close by and affordable, and uh, I made the, uh, you know, I got lots of student loans, and uh, it was just a place I was familiar with, and I knew that I, I could, I could get through it without um, really studying too hard. I yeah. guess. <laughs> and uh, so that's that's why Kent State. And then my my wife, um, who was my girlfriend at the time, she uh, was going to Ashland, and so we um, we both had our space during the week, and then we um, see each other on the weekends. Very very cool. And now Kent State is the. Uh the home of your Maura Murray archives, correct? Yeah, uh, both the Maura Murray archives and also my um, documents related to 
the Amy Mahalik case and several other cases that I've uh, investigated for my um, other articles and books. And what, uh, it, it's all up in a special collection, which is the top of the library in Kent State, also the tallest building in Portage County. And uh, if you make an appointment, you can go up there and look, look through the boxes and boxes of notes I have on the Mahalik case and the Moore and Murray case. And um, they're trying to build uh, specifically a true crime library up there. So it's it's my stuff, but it's also a couple other writers that uh, have donated their notes and material there so they can build up a true crime archive. Very, very cool. So, so after college, um, you sort of um, became part of an elite group. Um, I believe it's called the Dollar Club, or is the the Dollar Project? Oh, yeah. So, the, um, explain dollar babies. the dollar babies. Okay. So <laughs> yeah. Um, obviously it's pretty elite class. Uh, I believe Frank Darabont is, is with you in the same class. Indeed. Indeed. Yes, um, so <laughs> the dollar baby program, uh, was a little known, uh, program that Stephen King had for aspiring filmmakers. And what it was is you could send him your idea on how to adapt one of his short stories. And if you figured out how to contact him, and this was in the days, um, I mean, the internet was like a year or two old at the time. Um, so it was, it's really hard. It was at the time it was really hard to track down anybody if you didn't have the local numbers. So anyways, if you could track down Stephen King's office and his people and you sent them, um, your plans to adapt a short story, they would allow you to have the rights to that story for one year for one dollar. And that's how it became known as the Dollar Baby Club. And that allowed you to adapt and film and produce um, a, a work, uh, a, a film or um, a video, you know, whatever you wanted to put together based on that short story. Uh, the, the only stipulation was you couldn't sell it and uh, you couldn't... Um, so it was specifically meant for film festivals and your director reel, uh, just so you could build it up. And yes, Frank Darabont was, I think, the second uh, person to apply and, and get through the Dublin Baby program. And I think I was like number nine or 10. And since then, I mean, now it's like in the 50s and 60s. There's, yeah. there's a bunch of people that have done that. Um, but. Uh, so my project was based on the short story, All That You Love Will Be Carried Away, which is one of the few Stephen King stories that doesn't have any supernatural element. It's about a traveling salesman who is considering putting together a book uh, that's a collection of uh, graffiti and sayings and, and um, funny things he's found in the stalls of bathrooms across the United States. Um, very weird idea, but uh, so... Um, I got Joe Bob Briggs, the guy that used to introduce monster movies for TNT. Monster and, uh, Vision, yeah. The, the, yeah, the, sec Vision. the second incarnation of Monster Vision, yeah. <laughs> um, Joe Bob Briggs started it, and then uh, I also got Michael Stanley to play a cop, and uh, Harvey Picard played the hotel clerk. Um, and Harvey was, you know, great, but very cantankerous and his daughter helped me get him um, into the movie 
and she's the one that explained to me, if you really want him to be in this, you have to make sure that he has no way to get off set. So we sent a car up to get him um, so he didn't drive and then brought him down. And he was he was in, on the set like five minutes. He's like, ah, this is ridiculous. I want to get out of here. I'm like, I'm sorry. <laughs> we can't get you home until after, after you do the scene. So we kind of kidnapped Harvey. Yeah. Um, and then the film pr- premiered at the 2005 Montreal World Film Festival and played up there, which was real fun. And, um, yeah, it was the start of, um, you know, a professional, uh, great, you know, movie making. And you know, that's still something I'm very interested in and hopefully getting back to. I've got a documentary that is going to premiere at the Chagrin Documentary Film Festival next month. Um, and, uh, you know, so I, I'm trying to get back to that what was Joe Bob like to work with? Because I, because like you see him on Monster Vision, and then even in his new show now, he just seems like really laid back and just like a fun-loving like kind of guy. Like, how, first off, how did you get him for the role, or any of these guys for the role, and what were they like? Um, yeah, Joe Bob was uh, awesome. Um, you know, I I was trying to find somebody for the for the movie, and I was. I remember having dinner with my dad at a Mexican restaurant in um, Cuyahoga Falls, and we were talking about it. I'm like, who, do, who can I get that would be gettable? And, and uh, my, my dad was a big Joe Bob Briggs fan. He used to read his articles and bring them home for me to read. And uh, so it dawned on me. I'm like, oh, my gosh, i got to go get Joe Bob Briggs. So, again, I tracked down these people, and you'd be surprised. I mean, you probably know this, but... Um, you know, these actors that are, are familiar, that, that, we, that we know that maybe aren't real busy at the moment, uh, if you can find a way to reach out to them, you know, they, they just, they want to work on something. And, and if you can pay them a decent day rate and cover their expenses and travel, you know, there's a good chance you can get some of these, these, uh, these actors to appear in your, your projects. And he was just really, he was a really cool guy. I, I remember the weird... The one weird little story I have to share about Joe Bob is he hates flying. He will not fly. <laughs> so we had to we had to bring him in from New York on an Amtrak. So my producer, who was um, uh, a lawyer in Cleveland, um, David Thomas, not the guy from Wendy's. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, uh, <laughs> David Thomas is, is my friend, and, and he's a lawyer, and um, uh, uh, he, he's great. But the best way I can describe him is. He is kind of the living incarnation of, of Better Call Saul, um, of Saul Goodman. And he, he even kind of looks like him and, and has the same manners and, and way of, of expressing himself. So if you can picture, like, Saul Goodman waiting in an Amtrak station at 2 o'clock in the morning to get Joe Bob Briggs off this train, uh, that's kind of how the whole thing started. And, and then, you know, the Amtrak train left for New York after the shoot at, like, 2 a.m. too. And I told him, I said, I said, Dave, whatever you do, make sure you're at the station in time because that train's not going to wait. you got to get, and then we're screwed. Um, he's like, yeah, I'll, I'll take care of it because I knew they were going to go out drinking. And uh, sure enough, they, they went out and had a, had a few too many, <laughs> and they missed, the, <laughs> they, they missed Joe Buck's train back to New York. So um, at that point, there's no other way to get him home except for flying. So he was, and then he was pretty upset about about that, but we covered the the expense of, uh, of the, the plane ticket too. Of course. <laughs>
So, um, overall, it was a pretty good experience making that, and then um, it premiered at the film festival, and then um, what kind of happened after that with it? Yeah, so, you know, eventually you reach this point, um, especially then when, you know, technology wasn't quite as affordable as it is today, where, um, you know, I've I've done done, uh, filmmaking to a point where um, I've done as best as I could with independent funding. So the next step is to become, you know, a, a, an actual director or, or a writer where people are, are funding your movies, where studios are funding your movies, where you're allowed to go out and do it, you know, and, and film and become this director. But I, I still didn't really have any connection. So um, I did a couple things. One, I started volunteering at the Sundance Film Festival. Uh, and I just worked in the travel department there and, uh, you know, got people on the, their buses to the, to the films that they needed to reach and made some connections out at Sundance. And I also realized that, um, my strength was at the time was, uh, was writing. I could, I could write a decent paragraph and, uh, I was starting to get more and more into journalism and it dawned on me that like, it's going to be a long con, um, but I think my chances of becoming a director are better if I apply myself to writing and and work up from there. And and I was right, um, but it took me a lot longer than I than I thought. Um, I started writing seriously in 2004, and I'm just now uh, in 2018, 14 years later, to the point where. Um, I am writing screenplays and I'm, I'm adapting um, novels and original work for, for studios. You know, I, I've, I've been paid, you know, the, the last couple projects through NBC Universal and Fox and Hulu. And um, so I'm, I'm where I want to be. It just took a long time to get there. That's awesome. Um, so, so you did the Stephen King film. You wrote the Amy Mihaljevic book, obviously, and then you did a couple other things, and then you kind of wanted to take a break from the nonfiction book writing and start writing some fiction. So then comes The Man from Primrose Lane and The Great Forgetting. Um, So I have not read either of these books yet. I do plan on doing so. Um, But what can you tell me about these books? Um, Yeah, so um, The Man from Primrose Lane... Uh, was it, it's loosely based on the real crime that I wrote about and investigated for Cleveland Scene, um, the case uh, what I call an unsolved suicide, which uh, occurred in 2002. This guy, uh, Joseph Newton Chandler, uh, was living in East Lake and lived in this efficiency somewhere in his 80s or late 70s, and... Uh, one day he uh, walked into, he bought a gun and then uh, locked up his apartment, closed the windows, uh, went into the bathroom, stood in front of the mirror, shot himself in the head. And nobody found his body for like a week. It was in the middle of summer, so decomposition was a problem. So they weren't able to get his fingerprints when they found him. But they knew his name from, you know, the lease. And they went to contact next of kin and they traced down a sister, and they called her up and said, hey, we got some bad news, your brother committed suicide. And she's like, that's impossible. My brother died in 1948 in a car accident. 
extent when he was eight years old. And that's how the police found out that this old man in Eastlake had been living under a fake name in Cleveland for 30 years. And uh, so it's a, it's a fascinating case. In fact, it was just solved using these, this new DNA technique um, a couple months ago. But it had been an, a big unsolved case for many years. And I started wondering, I, was, I, was, I wanted to write a novel and I wanted it to be a mystery. And um, so this, this made a good beginning. And I thought, well, what would be the weirdest explanation I could come up with for who this man really was? And then I thought, well, what if he was me who would come back, <laughs> who would come back from the future to um, stop one of these, you know, Amy Mihalovic or somebody else, one of these crimes from ever occurring and got stranded in the past? And so that's kind of the... Uh, the the seed of, of what became the man from Primrose Lane, which is kind of this uh, detective noir, you know, about this journalist who is searching a very similar case, who slowly realizes that um, there's time travel involved. Uh, so, um, and that, that, that book came out in 2012, did really well, and it was a two-book deal and, with this publisher, and she, you know, kind of Sight Unseen took the um, idea for my second novel, which is The Great Forgetting. And it was, you know, all my life I, I just wanted to be a legitimate author. And, you know, here I was with this publisher, this national publisher, this very fancy publisher, in fact, um, who wanted my next book. So it was like handing the keys to the kid, and, you know, he just took off with it. So what I turned in for my second book was a 950-page monster called The Great Forgetting. And the publisher took one look at it and said, nobody, nobody's going to read this thing. You have to cut this thing down to under 500 pages. And so I spent the next, I spent the next two years whittling away at this book until I got it down to a manageable, like, 425 manuscript pages. So I cut out more of The Great Forgetting than ended up in it. And um, essentially the book is another mystery, uh, but it's also a love letter to conspiracy theories and, and kind of the X-Files and Twilight Zone. And the idea is, what, what if all these little conspiracy theories like fluoride in the water and mind control and, you know, human-animal hybrids, what if, what if all these conspiracy theories we... we we have out there what if they're really true and not just that what if they're all connected and there's one giant conspiracy behind it and so um it starts off the main character's a history teacher from lakewood ohio and gets pulled into this uh, this plot and ends up uh trying to save the world very very cool um so you had to so um Obviously, you cut out a lot of the book. Um, how did you kind of determine how to do that? Because obviously, you had to cut like a lot, you know. Yeah, yeah, whole characters and settings and scenes. It was really difficult. It was very difficult. You couldn't. Uh, you couldn't have just left it on a cliffhanger, and then maybe they would have picked you up for a third book. I, I don't think, there was conversation about maybe turning it into three separate books and turning it into a young adult 
series, but I, I didn't really want anything to do with that. And, uh, I, you know, so I, I, I looked at it and I, I took basically the, the, the parts that were really working well and um, tried to figure out a way that I could condense you know, the rest of the story. And um, if I ever get, you know, to, to the point where a lot of people want to read my stuff <laughs> and I'm not there yet, even though the books do fairly well. But if I'm ever a popular writer, my, my goal is to go back and have a, you know, a complete and uncut version of the great forgetting because it was, you know, there's so much fun stuff that, that I had to get rid of that uh, I'd like to see one day. Yeah. So your most recent book, um, and probably what you're most known for is, is, am I right by saying that you're most known for the Maura Murray case? Yeah. Oh yeah. It's definitely sold more than all my other books, maybe combined. Cool. So I'm talking about True Crime Addict, which if you have not yet read, I highly suggest you all go out and buy it and read it. Um, obviously we can't get into every single detail with the Maura Murray case cause it's, really complex and you have a whole podcast about it you have a whole book about it um so i guess kind of give us give us as much as you can of the the Maura murray case i know you're probably sick of talking about it you know you told the story a hundred times but <laughs> no no um yeah so the the general idea so you know i i, I had this thought that i knew true crime it was right at that time. I just had a hunch that true crime was going to be big. And it was and it was something I knew how to write. And so I was looking around for a bigger story, something on a national level that I could really spend some time digging into. And I remember sitting at home and watching a 2020 special about two women who disappeared. And one of them was Brooke Wilberger, and the other was Maura Murray. And Rick Wahlberger's case was very typical, um, and I, you know, it's very obvious. Um, very, you know, it's a case you've heard over and over again. It, it's incredibly tragic, but it's a simple case of uh, an abduction. Now, with Maura Murray, uh, right away, uh, my ears perked up, and uh, I realized there's something more here because the gist of it is. Um, in 2004, this is the week that Facebook launched, so it's the first big mystery of the social media age. Uh, Maura Murray was a student at the University of Massachusetts Amherst studying nursing. On a Monday afternoon, she emailed her professors and said, there's been a death in the family. Hold my work till the end of the week. That was a lie, by the way. Nobody died. Um, she then gets in her car, goes and picks up a bunch of booze, more than one person would need goes to the ATM, empties out her bank account, to the, you know, it was only like 280 bucks. Then she drives north for, um, I don't know, a couple of hours, hour and a half or something like that, um, into the White Mountains of New Hampshire. And it's about 7.30 that night, so it's dark, it's February, very dark, and she comes to this like 90 degree turn in the road, uh, and she crashes her car into the snowbank. Um, and there are three houses nearby that, that had a sight line through the accident scene, and they, they were close enough that they heard the crash. And this is fairly typical for them in the winter 
out there. You know, people crash at that, that curve a few times every year. So when they heard the crash, they uh, there were two people that called 911 and reported the crash so the police could get out there. Now, between the time of the, the 911 call and the responding officer uh, is anywhere between three minutes, but probably no longer than seven minutes. And somewhere in that window, more Murray disappears, never to be seen again. So I saw this, and, and right away I realized this isn't one mystery, this is two. Um, what happened to Maura Murray? But also, also, um, what was she doing in the White Mountains to begin with? And I figured if I could answer one of those questions, I'd, I'd get close to the answer of the other one. So I spent the next five years researching the case, and I came to believe that Maura, um, you know, was, was there was a lot of, trouble and a lot of drama going on in her life and I think she was trying to get away from the men in her life and that's what drove her up into the White Mountains. Yeah, because I, I guess at the time, I mean, I, I was a kid when they were reporting this so I don't really remember anything because I wasn't aware of it at the time but she was kind of painted as like an all-American girl, correct? And then the more layers you unpeel you kind of realize that she wasn't what she seemed. Oh yeah, very very much like a Laura Palmer type of character. She, yeah, in fact, I think there was even an article that, that referred to her as the all-American girl, but, and, and that was, you know, as a journalist, I, it just, something didn't ring true um, to that, and I started looking into her background. One of the first things I found was that at the time of her disappearance, she was uh, in trouble for credit card fraud and identity theft, and she had only ended up at the University of Massachusetts Amherst because she was about to get kicked out of her, the first school that she attended, which was West Point. And uh, the reason she got in trouble at West Point is she stole from Fort Knox. You know, she stole from the most secure facility in the United States. And, but it wasn't like she stole, like, gold bullion or anything like that. What she stole was makeup from the commissary, like five bucks worth of makeup. So that, to me, was like a cry for help. Maybe she wanted out of West Point, but herself to do it the typical way um so she was there's a lot of stuff going on in her life not the least of which was a boyfriend who uh by all accounts seems to be um a, a, a dangerous person you know right now he uh is facing a possible well, there's a grand jury going on in, in washington dc where where he lives now because He's been accused of, of uh, assaulting um, women uh, in the D.C. area. Yeah, so actually I think you were on Twitter yesterday talking about that, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, because he's got, uh, you know, he's been quiet for many years, but all of a sudden you know, he started uh, tweeting out some nasty things about me and calling me a stalker, and it's like, hey man, I'm just a journalist. I'm reporting, I'm reporting and gathering, I'm gathering and reporting facts. Um, you know, but we live in a time where if you don't agree with the facts, you attack the reporter and uh, you call it fake news. And so he's taken a, a page from Trump's book and, and <laughs> coming after me. Yeah. Uh, so, so speaking of yourself and people coming after you, there's a lot of you in the book. Um, it's called True Crimatic, and I, I think the book is as much about Mora as it is about you and your journey sure. in the story. Um, and it kind of gets into some heavy stuff. Like when I started, I didn't expect 
everything that was <laughs> that was in it. I mean, you go from there's issues with mental health, there's drug related things, there was and I guess you say this in the book, so I, I guess I can say it here. There was a little driving under the influence to get in the state of mind that Mora was in yeah. at the time. Um, you go into family problems, um, stuff with your son. You get thrown in jail. Um, and you even go into, <laughs> um, like, your past life where you were almost abducted and issues yeah, with your life, family. When I, was, when I was 13 years old, not like... When I was like uh, Cleopatra in Egypt or anything. Yeah. <laughs> Meaning when, <laughs> when I was younger, not a past life. Past life yeah. 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 There's some heavy stuff in there. It was very cathartic to to, to write, um, and I was a mess when I was researching the Maura Murray case. And part of that was because Maura Murray and, and her family and everybody surrounding her, they're just toxic. You know, just toxic people. And uh, you know, I lived in that world for a few years. And yeah, so what is it about, uh, I guess you touched on this a little bit, but what is it about this case that really drew you in and what really draws a lot of people in and has them talking even today? Um, the reason why the Maury Murray case is so popular, in my opinion, is because it works as um, a Rorschach test where, um, you know, those, those uh, tests where you look at the ink blots on the piece of paper and the psychiatrist says, what do you see? And um, whatever you see is really kind of what's going on in your own consciousness and your own subconscious. And same thing with the Maury Murray case, because there's enough clues that um, depending on who you are and where you come from and what's going on in your life, you can determine whether or not whether or not you believe that Maura ran away or whether she was abducted by a random stranger um, or if she was uh, murdered by somebody that she knew. If, she, if it was related to drugs, if it was, you know, there's, you can go a thousand different ways. And so people read into Moore's case what they bring to it. Um, so they see themselves reflected in this case and, and, and come to a conclusion based on their own personal experiences. So that makes the case so personal to everybody that thinks about it. And so when you start to argue that no, 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 that's probably not what happened. It's this thing that probably happened. They take it as a, as a personal attack. And uh, I think that's why you get so many people that are so passionate and, um, and angry and, and they fight about the little details of the, this case because they see themselves in it. Yeah, so speaking of people being angry about it, her family did not want you to write this book at all. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so, the, I, you know, I could have stepped away at that point because one of the first people I contacted was Morris' father, and I, I really kind of wanted the family's permission to look into this. And, uh, you know, the word got back from the father, and he said he didn't want to have anything to do with the book. And uh, that, to me, was, um, as, a, as a reporter, that's another red flag. It's like, what father of a missing young woman would not want more attention on that case? Um and, and, you know, there's reasons for that. I think, uh, I think her dad didn't want all this stuff about, you know, the credit card fraud and identity theft. And, you know, she had, you know, stuff like she was having an affair with the track coach and, um, you know, into, you know, uh, promiscuous things, uh, even just like any college student. 
Um, so he probably knew that all that was going to come out and was trying not to get it out there. But as a father of a, of a, of a girl, I've got a daughter, I've got a son. You know, if, if they were missing, um, you know, I'd move heaven and hell to figure out what happened. And I don't care what kind of personal demons you, you drag out in order to figure out what happened to them. You know, do what you need to do. That's, that's, how, that's how a normal father reacts. Um, but Fred's not normal. Uh, so um, I started to wonder why. So, um, you know, so I, instead of turning me away from the case, it, it, uh, it caused me to look a little deeper. So the Moore-Murray case is still unsolved. Um, there's a lot of theories out there as to what really happened. Um, some of them are outright ridiculous, like um, a serial killer picking her up and uh, stuff of that nature. What do you think is the most plausible explanation? Do you think it's the, that she's living in Canada? Well, uh, I did for a while, and I still hope that that's the case because we, you know, I want to hope that she's alive, but the more time that's passed, the, the less likely that that probably is, is the case. Um, now what I've, what I've come to believe is most likely is that uh, the one thing that I, that I believe that I came away from my research believing 100% is that when Maura went up to the White Mountains, she was not traveling alone that she was traveling with a tandem driver. And I think it might have been some friends from school or friends from elsewhere, uh, other girls. And I think they were driving up, maybe staying at a cabin. But uh, Moore had been looking into rental properties that had more than one bedroom, uh, which I think is the biggest clue that most people overlook in this case. Um, she wasn't trying to find just a place for her. She was, she was trying to find a place for her and friends. So I think there was this tandem driver that was ahead of her. She got in the accident, and they came back and picked her up. But what I've come to believe lately is that she made it to her destination uh, and had planned to stay there the week, and I think the friends were going to come back at the end of the week to pick her up um, because they ended up going back to school or wherever they came from, leaving Laura at this cabin or wherever she was alone for, for the rest of the week. And so she didn't have cell phone service. She didn't have the internet. She wasn't aware that her crash had become a missing persons case. And I think somebody that she knew and trusted tracked her down before the police did. And I think they flew into a rage because here's Mora. She's created this drama again. Um, look at all the trouble she's put, put us through. Um, Whoever it was that, that that was close enough to her, I think they flew into a rage, and, and and I think she was, I think she was probably murdered by somebody she knew at a different location. Yeah. So you talk about the Moore Murray case a lot more in detail in your book as well as your podcast, The Philosophy of Crime. Um, right now you've got six episodes out, but you recently stated that season two is in the works. Um, what can we expect from season two, and when do you think it'll be out? Yeah, so, yeah, a podcast, you know, who knew? Uh, you know, they're, they're, you know, suddenly popular again. It's like, you know, almost like it feels to me like we're going back to the days where we sit around the radio and listen to these teleplays. Uh, so it's really neat. Um, I wanted to do a true crime podcast, but there's so many podcasts out there that cover crimes that have already occurred. I didn't want to just be another one of those. So it took me a while to figure out what I wanted to do. And what I realized were there were a lot of questions that came up during 
uh, investigations into true crime and thinking and reading about true crime. And there was, there's nobody answering these questions. You know, like, why is true crime so popular? Um, why do people do bad things? You know, what makes a person bad? Is it, uh, were they raised that way or is it biological? So I wanted to tackle the big questions behind true crime and uh, do it from a philosophical standpoint. Like, what would Socrates have to say about this? What would Plato say? What would Camus and, you know, Foucault and, and uh, you know, all these these people that, you know, these you know, fancy people that I studied in, in uh, English lit and, you know, um, uh, you know, comparative studies and, and, and those, those classes that, that were part of my master's. And so that's what I did. And, and that was the first season. So season two, um, you know, I do, I will do what I did with season one, which is one day I will release all six episodes and you can binge them if you want. They're each episode's about 25 minutes to a half an hour. Um, if that, I think some of them are, are even a little bit shorter than that, but each, um, so each, Episodes a question, um, and uh, this new season, you know, one of the some of the things I'll be getting into are, um, you know, capital punishment and how that came about and and why we have it here in the United States and why we're the the last, you know, uh, developed country that still has that and what it means and um, how we treat prisoners and uh, you know, there's another episode I like to get you know. I'll have the serious questions, but I also get weird sometimes, you know, and delve into, like, quantum mechanics and what that has to do with investigation crime and fun stuff like that. One of the fun episodes for season two will be a look into this uh, um, thing that happens sometimes called Folly Adu, and it's where somebody like Charles Manson or... Um, it's like means two, Jones, two becomes one or two as one or something? Yeah, basically, what it is is when somebody convinces somebody else of their delusion. So it's almost like mass hysteria, but it's driven by one uh, very conniving and clever and um, attractive mind, you know, like a Charles Manson, where he convinces him and his followers that of this, you know, delusional reality where it's suddenly okay to kill people. And, um, you know, how how humans can fall into that, how they can be convinced that, uh, that things are not as they really are and how they get sucked into delusions. It's very scary stuff. Uh, but I see it all the time. I see it in the Moore Murray case online where people have broken into these different factions based on what they believe and will attack anybody that disagrees with them. And um, it's, it's some something to do with the human condition for some reason we're very we're very um suggestible very cool so season two of philosophy of crime is coming out soon and i guess to kind of close things out here um it's the halloween season and um we're moving away from the horrors of real life and let's talk a little bit about actual horrors some supernatural stuff because the book i was introduced <laughs> Um, to you by um, where I discovered you was it came from Ohio. Um, oh, cool! So tell tell us about why you wanted to write a book about that and how all that came about, and if you have any stories in your travels um, researching these supernatural things. Sure. 
Yeah, uh, you know, so when I was a kid, I was really taken by these series of books called Haunted Ohio. And uh, I collected all of them, and they were just, you know, simple little regional books put together uh, by a printer and a writer. And uh, they were a collection of local legends and tales. And growing up in the country, you know, I know that wherever you're from, whatever small town you're from, there's always some local legend about, like, a crybaby bridge or a ghost in a particular house or something like that. And um, so I became a journalist, and I really, I was playing with the idea of, like, I, I don't want to do much more true crime, but I know how to investigate these cases. So I'm like, what if I do something kind of like the Haunted Ohio books, except more into, like, monsters and legends like that? So, uh... I collected, I think, like a dozen of these legends throughout Ohio that uh, I could investigate like an investigative journalist would, where, you know, it's not some crazy story, you know, seen by the local drunk. You know, these are weird, unexplained uh, tales by, you know, police officers or park rangers or military people, people that don't have any reason to lie or make things up. And probably the most fascinating case to me that I got to investigate was the case of the Loveland Frog. And when I heard, when I heard about this, I was a reporter for Scene, and I, it was so crazy. Like, I'd never heard of any legend like this, ever. And the, the legend is in, in um, Loveland, Ohio, which is uh, outside of Cincinnati. It's a sleepy little, little town on the banks of the Little Miami River. Back in 1972, this uh, police officer was cruising around and doing his rounds and came across this, uh, what he thought at first was the corpse of a, was the body of a bear that had died and, and this big thing on the side of the road by the bridge. And he parked his cruiser and shined the light on it. And then it stood up on, on two legs. And he looked at it and he described it as, as something like a cross between a, a frog and a human. And so he gets out of the car and does what any, you know, red-blooded American police officer will do when faced with uh, the unexplainable. He shoots at it. And uh, it um, jumps down, you know, away from him uh, towards the water over the bridge, and it disappears. A second police officer sees this thing a couple days later and shoots at it, too. So that became known as the Loveland Frog, and periodically through the years, people would see this half-man, half-frog thing on the banks of the Miami River. And I thought, what in the world is going on down there? So I went down and tracked down one of the police officers, and, and he talked to me. He, he said, I don't, want to, I don't want to talk about what happened that night. Um, it's done nothing but, but grief. It's been nothing but grief for me. Um, I said, but, you know, what do you think of what? I mean, you know, what the heck was it? And I, I said, the other police officer said it was just a giant lizard and to leave it alone and don't look into it. And and uh, I started to head back to my car and he's like, oh, hold on. He's like, I will tell you this much. He said it wasn't a lizard. It was much, much bigger than any anything anybody could keep as a pet in their house. And uh, so I went, you know, as a, as a journalist, I love research. And I stopped in at the local... Um, historical society and I found some articles uh, and information about uh, 
the founding of the town, and I found the story about these um, French missionaries that had visited the area in the early 1600s, and they talked about meeting this tribe of Indians called the Twaitwee people. And uh, the Twaitwee uh, chief warned them to stay away from the river because that was the domain of the Shanahook. And the French missionary was like, what the heck is a Shanahook? And the chief said, that's the half-man, half-frog thing that, that lives in the river. So these sightings go back centuries, and it's amazing. I, don't, I, have, I have no idea what, what really is going on down there. <laughs> yeah, so you talk about the Loveland Frog <laughs> in the book. Um, there's many other things in there about ghosts, aliens, Bigfoot, um, the legend of Red Eyes, which if you read the book, you would know that James experienced red eyes for himself when he was a child, and the Mothman. And through my investigating at the Mothman Festival this year, um, it turns out that the steakhouse that offers the Mothman sauce has since closed, so that mystery will remain unsolved, I guess. Oh, man. <laughs> so a great place. Yeah. They do have <laughs> Mothman cookies at uh, this coffee shop, and there's a Mothman pizza, apparently, that you can get somewhere. Oh, great. great. Yeah. I'll have to get back down there. Yeah. <laughs> so so you wrote this book, and I guess, did you necessarily believe any of the things people were telling you, or is it all just... Um, I don't know. Uh, I, you know, I, I have to say, I, I don't think I'd believe any of it until I saw it with my own eyes, but I do believe that they believe. And that's what fascinates me, is how these normal, everyday, average people with you know, jobs like police officers and, you know, fire, you know, uh, firemen, you know, people that don't normally lie and make stuff up, they totally believe in things like the Loveland Frog or Bigfoot or aliens um, and believe they've seen them. So, I don't know. Do you want to believe? <laughs> I, I do. I want to believe. Very cool. I feel I feel the same way. I want to believe, but I don't know if I can bring myself to actually believe in anything. But um, I guess that is all the time we have for today. Um, oh, I, I guess one last thing. Um, I did make a video about the It Came From Ohio. What kind of did you think when someone did a book review of one of your more obscure books? <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Thank you. Um, no, I, I, every once in a while I'll go on YouTube and see if anybody's you know done anything. There, there are some reviews out there. Um, and, you know, I, I love to see somebody else's interpretation of, of, of stories that I've written. It's, it's the best. Very cool, because I was geeking out for a second when you shared it and all that. I was like, oh my god, this famous author is sharing my stuff. He's <laughs> having his book adapted by possibly Johnny Depp, and he has Bradley Cooper attached to him and all this, and I was just like, oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, uh, you know, it, 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 that's, that, it, it's always... Uh, it always means a lot, you know, I, I, I don't, no matter who you are, and I'm not, you know, I'm not lucky enough yet, or, you know, God willing, maybe one day, but, uh, you know, I'm sure even people like um, John Irving and Stephen King and Peter Straub and, you know, the um, Neil Gaiman, they still love reading people, uh, about people that, that like their stuff, I mean, that's the ultimate, you know, that's why they do it, that's why any of us do it. Very cool. Well, I want to thank you for coming on the show and chatting with me today. Um, and hope, 
and hopefully I will talk to you again sometime soon. I'd love to have you on whenever you have something coming out or just whenever you want to chat. So thanks for coming on. That'd be great. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Send me the link when it's out. Oh, I will, of course. Well, that was my conversation with James Renner. It was a really fun time. I hope to have James back on the show again sometime. If you enjoyed it, make sure you share it with a friend. Click that subscribe button and smash a like on this video. Also, leave me a comment on who you'd like to see on the show in the future. Again, you can find links to all of James's stuff at jamesrenner.com. And that's it for this first episode of the House of Horrors. I hope you guys enjoyed it, and we will see you next week with another interview. Take care. Yeah.